السلام عليكم دكتور حسام السلام ورحمة الله أهلين ازاي حضرتك عامل ايه؟ كيف حالك؟ الحمد لله على الله تكون الأمور بخير إن شاء الله Hello. Hey, Dr. Yes, hello. You hear me? Yes, I hear you. No, I don't. And I don't. Hello. Hello, Dr. Hussain. Oh, okay. Now I hear you. Okay, good. Ahlan, كيف الحال؟ الحمد لله. والله تمام تمام الحمد لله. I see people joining in. That's good. Yeah. It's nice. I'm sorry for the confusion about the time because I. You know, they, uh, they written down the, the time for London and that's something that it is at Greenwich time. Uh, I reassure you, and a time convergent zone is really bad. <laughs> okay. okay, so I guess we should uh, mute till, till he's on. What do you think? Yes, okay. Okay. Oh, yeah. So he will talk for a few minutes, and then we'll go with the questions, right? Yes, and I think I think he will talk in a few minutes, covering most of the recommendation, uh, okay. and then we can spotlight more on these uh, items after he finish. Okay. Sure. Okay. Okay.
Hallo, Mark. Ja, hi there. How are you? Uh, nice to meet you. <laughs> How's everything? Uh, we're okay, you know. Uh, my wife and I are fine. We're doing our stay at home most of the time. Uh, I go out for like two walks a day and every couple of days I go to the grocery store, you put a mask on, you wear gloves and that's what we do. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, we had a little bit of snow overnight, which is very unusual this late, but I, I'm going to show you my backyard because you guys never see snow. Yeah. <laughs> very nice. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> so can you, can you see it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Uh, it's very unusual to snow in April, but we had a very we had a small amount overnight, and uh, it'll be gone soon because it's supposed to be warm tomorrow. And uh, this time of the year, the sun is strong, so uh, everything will melt fast. Oh, thank you for sharing such energetic emotion with us. <laughs> Well, I thought it would be, you know, an unusual sight for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, I thank you for your time. I, I can, we can start now. Um, um, and uh, let me uh, first introduce that um, uh, for our uh, attendees that uh, uh, it's about once in a generation, a global pandemic emerges and uh, wreaks havoc on vulnerable world. Uh, an unusual sight for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> This is why most of us have limited the personal experience with such events. The present outbreak of a coronavirus associated with a, a, a third documented a, a spillover of a, a, um, an animal coronavirus to human that is causing a major epidemic in the last two decades. So I think this is a good opportunity for Mina Saino to have the honor to host Ooh. Professor Mark Fisher of course, he needs no introduction. Mark is the most experienced vascular neurologist around the globe. He is the president of the World Stroke Organization to help us to focus some lights and talk about uh, the recommendation for a stroke practice in the era of COVID pandemic. Uh, um, I first, uh, let me introduce our panelist, Dr. Hossam Al-Juhani. Dr. Hossam is one of the uh, most experienced interventional neurosurgeon in Middle East. Uh, he is a professor of neurosurgery, King Fahd Hospital of University, uh, Imam Abdurrahman bin Faisal University, uh, Dammam, Saudi Arabia. Hello, Dr. Hossam. Thank you, Osama, for the, for the um, kind introduction and uh, welcome, Dr. Fisher, with us. Uh, in this uh, Mina Sino event, and, and as you said, Osama, uh, it's uh, it's vital that we gain from the experience of uh, of uh, such a world class uh, uh, authority on this, and uh, to help us guide our practices in the region. Thank you very much for putting this together. Uh, we started by passing the mic to Mark to summarize his recommendation in his field. Then we go to shed some light and more light on specific items. <laughs> in the stroke workflow and the practice in this era of COVID pandemic. Uh, please, uh, uh, Dr. Mark, please. Okay, so I just wanna start by um, 
giving you an overview of what's going on here in Boston, aside from the snow. Um, so uh, obviously you all know that the United States has by far the most number of uh, COVID-19 cases in the world. In Massachusetts, um, we have, I think as of yesterday, over 34,000 confirmed cases. And I think it's about 12 or 1400 deaths. Uh, about half the people who've died have been in nursing homes or extended care facilities, which have really been devastated uh, by, by the infection and the mortality rate. The hospitals in Boston and the rest of Massachusetts are not overwhelmed by cases of uh, patients requiring intensive care. Uh, so it's very different here than New York. So I don't know what you've seen on the news about New York, but the healthcare system there was was pretty devastated by the number of cases. Uh, here, um, there is still intensive care unit bed capacity. Um, I get a week a, a daily update from uh, Beth Israel Hospital and the um, other eleven hospitals that are part of our network. And as of yesterday, we had 135 available intensive care unit beds and 110 occupied. So, uh, and, and I think that's the experience in the other hospitals in Boston, except for one public hospital where their ICU is full. Um, we're, we're really at the peak of the number of cases uh, right now from what everybody's telling us. And hopefully within a short time, it'll, the numbers will start to go down uh, as they have in New York. Uh, so I, I don't know if people want to share their experience now in the countries that we have on the call or we're going to wait till later. Osama, that's your call. What do you want to do? Yes, yes. Oh, um, uh, I think we can start by um, uh, uh, by uh, you to give us some recommendation regarding the stroke workflow. Uh, what is uh, in the in the literature about the um, uh, how to manage patient uh, workflow during this uh, pandemic and so on? Okay, so I, actually, I forgot to mention one one other fact is that um, we've seen a dramatic decrease in the number of stroke admissions at Beth Israel and also at Mass General. So uh, a week ago, we, we, have, we have a weekly stroke conference um, uh, that we, you know, we, we're now doing it virtually on, on, uh, on a website. Uh, so somebody looked at the numbers in March of stroke admissions in 2020 compared to 2019, and it was down by about 50%. Uh, and Mass General, the last I heard from them, uh, similar uh, decrease. I've also heard the same thing from many other colleagues around the United States. And uh, I actually did a survey of the board of directors of World, the World Stroke Organization. Uh, I, I got 15 responses out of 40 or so board members. And uh, in most countries, people are seeing also significant decreases uh, in stroke admissions. So what we think is going on is that patients with mild strokes and TIAs 
are afraid to access the hospital uh, because you know they're concerned about going to the emergency room uh, and um, being exposed to patients who might have COVID-19 that are there, et cetera. Uh, so we really think that patients are avoiding care, which is not a good thing because if they have a mild stroke or a TIA, they're clearly at risk for having something else happen, which might be more severe. Uh, and um, uh, we need to figure out ways of getting these people into the system. And we're working on actual, actually uh, setting up a virtual way of uh, having them interact with us. Uh, what I'm doing for my outpatient clinics are, uh, they're all done remotely now. Um, and the new patients that I see, we do by video uh, through a secure video link that the hospital has made available. And then the follow-up patients are um, uh, mostly by telephone and some of them, if I need to see what's going on, then we do a video. Uh, so what we're, what we're trying to set up at Beth Israel is um, an urgent access video conference with a stroke patient from home. And then we can try to advise them about what the best thing to do. Obviously, if it's a severe stroke, we're gonna tell them that they have to go to the emergency room. Uh, but if it's a mild stroke or a TIA, uh, my plan for those patients is uh, we have some urgent care centers available where we can actually do CT and CTA. Uh, so I'm gonna send them there and I can then avoid the emergency room uh, and the, the urgent care center is not trying to uh, have COVID-19 patients go there. So that's, that's sort of what we're doing. And then we'll get into the inpatient service uh, in a minute. Um, so I guess I could stop and take any questions on what I've already said. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, I think uh, um, we can have some question, uh, some from my side and the other from uh, Dr. Hossam's side. And uh, let me start with the first question about the, um, we know that the doctor treating the sixth, sixth uh, COVID patient have observed a new phenomena. Uh, some people have developed the widespread blood clots, their lungs peppered with tiny clockage that prevent oxygen from pumping into the bloodstream and the body and to a degree that a number of doctors are now trying to plaster the, uh, those clots with TBA, antithrombotic drugs, other doctors uh, prescribing some blood thinners like heparin and anticoagulant to uh, uh, prevent the clot before it, 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 uh, it, um, it starts. Uh, and also in a rep one report researchers in China said that um, seven out of compared to fewer than one in 100 people who survived. So it seems that there is some link between the COVID-induced uh, hypercoagulable state and the occurrence of cerebrovascular disorders. Uh, can you kindly uh, spot some light on uh, this issue? Is there any uh, reported uh, incidence of cerebrovascular disorders uh, in COVID patients? If there is any recommendations or preferences to use uh, a special type of antithrombotic drugs over the other? And what is a possible explanation behind such a hypercoagulable state? Uh, 
Well, I, I don't have any direct experience with that, but I, you know, I've read some of these reports too. Uh, and um, it sort of implies um, a condition that's similar to um, disseminate intravascular coagulation, DIC. Um, so, you know, I think if, if people are observing that in patients that uh, they should probably get hematology involved and discuss anticoagulation or not. Um, the mechanisms that people are, are, well, first of all, I mean, you know, most stroke patients who have a stroke and also have COVID-19, it's probably the usual mechanisms of stroke. Um, there are some reports that uh, of this hypercoagulable state. There's also some reports about, you know, COVID-19 affecting the heart um, function. So that could lead to, um, you know, clot forming in the heart and embolizing. Uh, I think all of this right now is very anecdotal and um, we don't really have enough information to, to make any definitive statements. Yeah. And what about the incidence of, uh, of uh, occurrence of cerebrovascular stroke in COVID-19 patient? Uh, as I said, I mean, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm still actually the editor of Stroke until um, until the end of June. Ralph, Sh Ralph Sacco and I are sharing it. There's a three-month overlap. And so my job right now is I'm, I'm handling all the COVID-19 submissions to Stroke. Uh, we've had a number of review papers that we've received. We have several that have been accepted, and I would recommend people to go on our website and try to access them. I'm going to talk about those a little bit later. Um, but we've had some, you know, like case series. And the way it seems to me when I read them is uh, it's very difficult to distinguish a new mechanism versus whether the patient really has just the typical mechanisms. So I think we're going to learn a lot um, more as we see more and more cases. Uh, I should also share some information from China because I was involved with a group and we submitted a paper um, to Stroke a couple of days ago. And so the colleagues in, in Shanghai surveyed 280 of the main academic hospitals in China for their ex experience with stroke and stroke treatment in February 2020 when the epidemic was at the peak in China uh, versus 2019. And a couple of interesting things. Uh, they had about a 40% decline in the, um, the number of stroke patients that they saw on an aggregate in February 2020 versus 2019. And the, um, the number of patients that were either given thrombolytic therapy or thrombectomy uh, decreased by 25% for both. So there was a clear decrease in patients coming. And for various reasons, thrombolysis and thrombectomy were not done. And one of the things they talked about, because they asked the uh, participants in the survey, you know, why didn't you treat? And so in some hospitals, they lost um, their relatively urgent uh, ability to treat. It took longer 
to, you know, to get things done because the patients had to be screened in many cases uh, for COVID-19. And that would delay, uh, you know, in various ways, getting patients um, to therapy. So um, it'd be interesting to hear what, what people on the call have seen. Uh, and then I think we'll get into some other issues about, you know, how you, about pre-hospital pre and hospital and your teams. Uh, but there's clearly been a big effect of the pandemic on stroke care. And that was my segue to, to my, my question to you, as, uh, because I see a lot of the uh, uh, Q&As and the, the chat on the side are um, echoing the, um, the notion that Osama mentioned that there is an increase in the, uh, um, in the rate of stroke in, um, in, um, in our region. Some of the, some of the um, participants are talking about 5% increase, some of them are talking about 25% increase. And that uh, I agree with you. That might be difficult to to be certain of what is uh, what is going on exactly. Is it related to the infection itself, or the presence of the virus, or just it's the, just the redistribution of patients? Because also in our region, we have to not forget that some of the major hospitals are shut down as COVID centers, and that dumps every every, yeah. every other possible stroke patient into one center or the next. Um, but my question to you is that since we have this uh, COVID pandemic, non-COVID patients actually suffered and got the short stick, uh, uh, short end of the stick. If you if you know if you if you may, cardiologists going to thrombolysis. But for us, we don't have any. We don't have that luxury. If it's not thrombolysis, then it's um, an acute stroke intervention. And that kind of paralyzed all our networks. I mean, in the Eastern province we had, uh, of Saudi Arabia, we had the network of transfer that was rapid and timely uh, and other regions in the country as well. But with this uh, pandemic happening, it, it short, short, uh, sort of paralyzed our ability to do rapid transfers. So my question to you is how in the scale of, of, of from a point of view of a health regulator, because the, here it where it's come, what's where it's coming. Health regulators are focusing mostly on COVID and COVID-related issues. But how can we, as a society or as an, uh, a people practicing this uh, care, acute stroke intervention care, um, lead the regulators to factor this in? Because that is an important point, and we want to hear your your take on it and how you how you you advise us to to do something like this. Well, I think that each country is going to have to respond differently because the situation in each country is variable. So for example, here in the United States, we don't have hospitals that are designated COVID-19 or not. Uh, I mean, basically all the hospitals take COVID-19 patients. Um, I suspect that what the reason that your particular hospital or is getting more patients is exactly what you said that other hospitals that are COVID-19 presumably are diverting patients to the ones that are not. But the experience in the US and Europe is that we're, we're seeing a substantial drop in the number of stroke patients, not an increase, because we're not diverting from one hospital to the next. It's really what you need to know is what's the overall national admission rate 
Uh, and as I mentioned in China, what they did was they surveyed 280 hospitals and you know, 227 responded. Uh, so that was all around the country. And then when they aggregated what they were seeing, there was a substantial drop in the number of stroke admissions compared to the, the same month a year before, it was about 40%. Uh, so, uh, my recommendation is obviously going to be know what's going on in your country as far as resources, what the response is, and I think there needs to be a discussion that serious life-threatening illnesses like stroke and myocardial infarction, they can't be ignored. Uh, you know, we have to have a plan for taking care of these people and, do, you know, at least certainly for the more severe patients that might that are going to require acute treatment that uh, there is a plan of how to get it done so that you know we're not ignoring this yeah and um, my that leads to the second point that within the hospital itself i mean i see some of the questions in the q a and the chat uh are raising this point on how do you uh handle the um the code stroke in the in the hospital, and I think from from that same uh, wavelength, we we I mean I mean each hospital has, as you said, has its own peculiarities, and the setup is different than the the hospital next door. And um, we developed ourselves, we developed this uh, protected code stroke um, uh, protocol for for acute ischemic stroke and also other uh, neuro interventions. But there's some resistance from the from from the administration and as to labeling all these patients as potential code uh, COVID because that will consume the PPEs unnecessarily. And then the other issue that we also have is that we are we're limit really limited in staff. So we, we mean we have either one interventionist or the or two maximum, with a very limited number of nurses and uh, and um, technicians. So again, you're, 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 there are multiple, multiple guidelines coming out from, uh, from multiple regions in the world about how to do this uh, properly within your hospital. So what is, what, again, what I'll have to ask because it's, uh, we will really need to be enlightened by your experience as to what would be the, 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 the your recommendation for some to implement something like this, and how can you help in uh, implementing it fast? Well, I, I'm sure we can develop it, but how to develop it and implement it fast—that would be the question. Well, I, I would refer you to uh, a couple of the papers that we've accepted uh, at Stroke because these things are outlined in uh, reasonable detail. So, the American Heart American Stroke Association. Uh, put out recommendations there, there on our homepage. And then there's another paper from Calgary um, called Protected Code Stroke, which gives pretty, um, uh, a pretty good detailed recommendation. And I would, I would just tell, I mean, obviously each location is gonna have its own issues, but uh, I, I think that the word protected code stroke is really what you should be aiming for. That uh, the, the personnel that are interacting with the, pa the patient should have personal protective uh, gear on, you know, as much as they is available. Uh, you need to limit the number of people interacting with the patient. So 
For example, um, we only send one person on the stroke team into the, into actually be in contact with the patient and everybody else is outside. Um, we're using telestroke to help even in, you know, in our own institution or affiliated hospitals, which we normally do anyway. Um, but you have to look at the, you know, the fact that the personnel, yourself and the other doctors on the stroke team and the nurses and whoever else, I mean, these are really valuable resources. And what happens if you get it? Uh, so I can't tell you the name of this person, but it's somebody that you all know who's an inter internationally known interventionalist has COVID-19. And uh, he's doing okay. But, you know, for their center, this is a major problem because I think they have like three people, so now they're down to two. Uh, if you have one, and if you get it, I mean, basically that's the end. You're not going to be able to do the intervention. So uh, I would definitely do whatever you can to convince the administration to continue acute stroke care, but it needs to be done in a protected way for both the patient and the healthcare providers to uh, be able to continue to do this. Because you know, we really don't want you to get infected. And if you're not protected, you, you know, then you might have a much higher risk. Yeah. Yeah. I, yes. I think I covered uh, um, all the questions in the chat, so Osama might take the floor now. <laughs> uh, I have a que uh, another question. Uh, I think uh, considering that approximately 20% of all stroke are due to large vessel occlusion, the majority of stroke patients will receive pharmacological treatment alone in our area, uh, mainly in our area. However, Alteplase has an early recanalization rate of less than 50%, 15%. Uh, which is even lower than in case of large vessel occlusion, considering that the early reperfusion is a strong predictor of good outcome, the quest of an air for alteplase with a more favorable pharmacological profile seems justified uh, uh, where um, like uh, there is some strength point uh, regarding the usage of tenecteblase, like it's a higher efficacy in clot lysis and a lower uh, hemorrhagic transformation. And most importantly, is a faster administration and the lesser patient contact, especially with COVID positive patient. Uh, do you think that uh, for a drip and ship model, the stroke workflow uh, uh, um, paradigm implying longer intravenous thrombolysis to mechanical thrombectomy delays currently, the most frequent situation in our region could favor, favor tenecteplase over alteplase? Well, that's a great question. Uh, so as many of you know, there is data so, uh, to suggest that tenecteplase is, is a more effective thrombolytic agent. So. Uh, I think there's two trials that have come from Australia that are really helpful on this. So one is the uh, Extend TNK trial. I published it. It was published in New England Journal. I can't remember if it was 19 or 18, and they did a direct comparison of early recanalization of tenecteplase versus TPA, and it was 22% versus 10% uh, in favor of tenecteplase. Um, these are patients that were going for thrombectomy, so they were known to have a proximal occlusion. And then uh, there was a second paper uh, just published uh, 
in January or February, sorry, uh, from the same group. And they looked at two different doses of tenecteplase. I think it was 0.25 milligrams per kilogram versus 0.4. And, uh, you know, the recanalization rate was, was pretty much the same for both. And it was in the same ballpark as, um, as the prior study. So uh, you can definitely make an argument now that tenecteplase uh, should be or could be used instead of TPA. Uh, the problem in the U.S. is that it's not FDA approved uh, tenecteplase for acute stroke. Um, I, I have no idea what the company is planning to do with the data that they have. Um, I'm not aware. Well, actually, there are. Uh, th th I am aware. Uh, there's a large phase three trial going on called TASTE, which is a direct comparison of TPA and tenecteplase. I, I don't recall the dose of tenecteplase in the 4.5 hour time window, and that's in the middle of enrollment. So uh, we're probably not going to see any data from that for two years or so. Uh, but I am aware of some places in the U.S. that are now using tenecteplase uh, as their uh, thrombolytic agent of choice, and I can see where it makes sense. So um, we've actually commissioned a um, invited topical review on this topic um, that is being prepared right now, and uh, you know it's going to make the argument that you can do it. So. I'm not opposed to it. And if you don't have any regulatory issue in doing it, then I could see I could see you doing it. Because tenecteplase has advantages. It's a bolus. So you don't have to wait, you don't have to give the treatment over an hour. Uh, it's cheaper, at least right now. Uh, and uh, it looks like it's at least a, a, a more effective thrombolytic. So that's my thought. Uh, I think uh, we have uh, some questions from the chat here. Uh, um, one of them is asking about um, post-code monitoring reduce the contact and the burden, uh, yet assuring safe patient. Of course, I think this is a start for my second question about the post-acute care uh, in the era of, uh, of, the, of the COVID patient positive, especially how to uh, balance between the um, patient care and the health care uh, workers' safety. And my question is uh, uh, for you, uh, is uh, there any uh, recommendation for stroke patient with positive COVID, especially for, for post-acute uh, care, which uh, what, what we should know about the balance, this balance, very uh, tight balance, and uh, what about uh, we should uh, uh, scrutinize to proper patient selection, no borderline uh, cases should be accepted, should we send the patient back to their referring hospital or find a new pathway for rapid disposition to allow for continuous turnover of, the, of those patients? Okay, so that's a great question. Um, so um, I would refer everybody to look at the, uh, the uh, protected code stroke paper, which is on the stroke website uh, from Calgary in Canada. And they do talk about this issue about um, you know post uh, post uh, thrombolytic um, care uh, and post thrombectomy. Actually, it's in the AHA guideline. 
as well. Uh, so the recommendations are uh, that you could potentially decrease the, the number of um, post-thrombolytic monitoring uh, uh, time points, because typically it's done hourly for, I think, four to six hours, and then it's less. Um, another issue is that most of these patients in U.S. hospitals were, t were typically put into intensive care or a stroke care unit. And so because the intensive care unit beds are now largely being used for COVID-19 patients, and some of the stroke units have been converted to intensive care, um, it's been suggested that you could, you could use a regular floor bed uh, to monitor these patients. And the idea would be to limit the number of contacts, if they're COVID-19, obviously, uh, with uh, healthcare personnel, because uh, that also could, you know, save on the uh, patient, the personal protective uh, gear uh, as well. So I think that in this current environment, we need to, um, you know, sort of bend the rules a little bit. Um, I don't think it's a great idea to send people back to the referring hospital if they're COVID-19 positive. I, I, I mean, they, then they're they're transported, so the transport people are exposed. Uh, you know, I, I think that they should stay at the larger hospital where the treatment was given. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, uh, uh, Dr. Sam, do you have any other question? The comments or the questions are still revolving around the, uh, the, um, the um, care of the patient within the hospital. And I think there is a clear distinction that, uh, as you mentioned, has to be taken into consideration whether the patient is suspected COVID or actual COVID or non-COVID. He's just someone who came from home, no fever, no cough, and had a stroke. So I think this has to be taken into consideration because we really want to save on these PPEs and leave them to the uh, hospital personnel who need them. But in, 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 um, there, ha there has to be changes in the workflow as it, for example, intubating patients. I mean, we're not gonna go into the debate of doing it under GA or awake, but if, if one wants to intubate a patient, it has to be intubated, like better to be intubated out of the angio suite to, to prevent the aerosol from happening inside the angio suite and infecting everyone. And that is something that we want to also hear from you because there are uh, several questions about the same thing. Did you, in your hospital, did you change this protocol to a more like uniform GA or not or intubate or not and this kind of thing? So what is your take on that? Uh well, the neurologists leave the decision about uh, intubation, I mean, general anesthesia versus conscious sedation to the interventionalist. Okay. I mean, I, I don't think a neurologist is the right person to be making that decision. I, I, it's clearly the interventionalist decision as to what they're comfortable with in that particular patient. Uh, so, I mean, I'm a neurologist, not an interventionalist, so I, I can't. Yeah, but with, from what from what you see in your hospital, did the interventionalists change their attitude about this, or they are just keeping the same practice? Uh, I think they're less inclined to intubate if they can avoid it. Uh, oh, okay. The other thing I should mention is um, every patient that's admitted to Beth Israel right now gets a coronavirus test, and it's back 
within 24 hours. And, um, you know, we're hopefully getting testing that's going to become available much faster. Uh, so that's another issue is, you know, what's your hospital doing to actually evaluate patients? I mean, the problem with going by symptoms is that we know that there's a substantial percentage of these patients that don't have symptoms. So uh, the way the hospitals are going here is to, is to screen everybody. But, you know, we're, we're in a much more uh, prevalent environment than I suspect uh, any of you folks are. Yeah, well, uh, the, one of the um, one of the uh, like the participants actually raised the point that in uh, in our country here in Saudi Arabia there is a stratification for risk and it's uh, distributed across health sectors. So you follow like a stick diagram and you see where your patient where this person falls into the chart of whether it's high risk or no or no risk or low risk, and then you can act accordingly. And that's I think we we can share this amongst our countries and hopefully help each other in that regard. Um, can, I, can I just comment yeah, about sure, that? Go ahead, so, go ahead. so that's how it started here, you know, three mm -hmm. some week plus weeks ago, but then it's evolved. So as the number of cases increased and testing became more readily available, uh, now it's every inpatient gets tested. Okay. So it's really, I mean, if you have good availability of testing, then you're going to want to test everybody. If you don't have good availability, then you have to stratify. So yeah. I think you need to push your administration and the government to get more tests available, especially for inpatients, because it affects how you interact with the patient. Uh, you know, yeah. if you know that they're negative, that's a good thing. Actually, I can't agree more because the, especially that in our region, we're designating hospitals as COVID and non-COVID. So anyone who is walking into a non-COVID hospital has to be verified before they yeah. go in and walk the halls. Um, one thing, um, so here, there are a couple of questions that I'll leave to, to later. The, um, one of the things that from, from a point of view of everyone's uh, well-being, um, there, there is a lot of uh, like discussion nowadays, now that the reality of the pandemic and the effect on uh, intervention is sinking in, that the psychological uh, support and burnout syndrome for healthcare workers. I mean, we know the stressors that we all go through when cares for themselves, for their coworkers and family members. We are mostly, mostly self-isolating at home. And uh, if God forbid we have the fear of death or actual death of, uh, of a colleague or a loved one, we have to deal with grief, but we still have to continue to work. Um, my question to you is that, uh, is there a real, a real effort from international organizations to do this or um, we just have to support each other at this point? Well, speaking from the WSO perspective and uh, Dr. Mansour actually gave me a promotion. I'm president-elect of WSO until uh, the fall when I'll uh, take over from Michael Brannon. So WSO hasn't done anything about this, but um, maybe we should. So we have an executive committee meeting by, uh, by Zoom on, on Monday. So I will bring up this topic. I can tell you what's happened at my hospital is that uh, there, there are resources that have been made available to healthcare professionals 
who are experiencing some of the issues that you bring up of burnout and anxiety and all the various psychological um, issues that, that surround being involved with the care of patients in this pandemic. So I don't know if WSO is going to have the resources really beside maybe a website that we could make available. I think that it's very important to discuss this issue among your colleagues in your hospital and try to see if the hospital uh, or, you know, the health ministry in your country is willing to do something about this because, you know, really what you need are mental health professionals to help out. Like, you know, if, if you're a physician or a nurse or a respiratory therapist that, you know, you're being placed in a situation and, and it's really stressful to you, you need you need some way to talk about it and try to cope with the stress. So I, I, I think you need to do this locally and nationally. And I will, I will bring up on our meeting on Monday whether the WSO can provide any resources as well. Thank you very much for this. Uh, Osama, you want to? Yes, I think uh, um, I have a question uh, starting by you, Dr. Hussam. What, uh, what about the frequency? How frequent uh, the a country, the telestroke is, the telemedicine is uh, um, uh, so limited and uh, it is, it is uh, something like um, it is restricted in some centers and uh, not uh, used in a um, proper way. I think uh, uh, what is the situation in Saudi Arabia? Do you have any comment on that? Uh, this, the sound was breaking up, Osama, at the beginning of the question. So I, I, I'm sorry, I did not catch the, the beginning of your question. Yeah, Can I, you repeat I, it again, I, I, please? I'm asking about the frequency. How frequent are you using the uh, telestroke in your practice? Well, if, uh, in my practice, I do. I use it all the time. I mean, we, we have our electronic devices that we share. Um, the uh, patient uh, like uh, images un unidentifiable and uh, also the, um, the, um, the um, clinical data and so on, like that's just the clinical data without any identification. Um, there is uh, also another region in Saudi Arabia also who, uh, who implemented this telestroke network, uh, I think, for, well, it's, it's almost a year now. Uh, in Medina, Munawara, there are, like, uh, there are seven hospitals that are linked also through uh, an electronic platform. So I think um, we 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 do it, and we de actually depend on it most of the, most of the time. When and it doesn't come uh, clearer than this time, because here, like the admin are not uh, available for us. The referral, uh, the actual referral uh, platforms are busy with, with uh, other things. And uh, this helps a lot. And I think you you um, you went on record, then you published about this. So maybe you'll share your experience with us in uh, in Egypt. Yes, this is my my. Uh, let me take this all uh, statement to Mark about the um, uh, the importance of having a clear consensus about the use of telestroke. Uh, uh, for triaging the acute stroke patient during the COVID pandemic and especially time after the COVID pandemic. Do you have these feelings uh, regarding the, we should have some uh, um, solid and a consolidated statement about the use of the telemedicine in a stroke workflow? 
Okay, so um, as I said earlier, um, we've been using Telestroke uh, in many parts of the United States for a long time. Um, so it's the way things are set up here in, in Massachusetts uh, is that we've got a you know, a reasonable number of large academic uh, centers. Uh, and um, most, if not all of them, have telestroke networks so that hospitals that are affiliated with Beth Israel or Mass General or University of Massachusetts, uh, those smaller hospitals, we can see patients in the emergency room uh, direct the exam. I mean, we can examine them, do an NIH score, see the imaging, and then make a decision about TPA or not, transfer or not. Uh, we actually fill out a consult form. Um, I, I do this with a stroke fellow when I'm on call. That was last night. Uh, didn't get any calls last night. Uh, and so it's very important to have that available both now and going forward because the reality is that just about everywhere in the world, the number of stroke specialists is limited. And most of the other smaller hospitals don't have, some of them don't have neurologists and you know most of them don't have stroke specialists. So it's a way to project expertise out into the community uh, and, and expedite uh, treatment uh, decisions and implementation. Uh, the other thing that's happening, which I sort of mentioned earlier, is um, there are basically no in-person outpatient visits right now here. Uh, everything is being done through uh, telehealth. Uh, as I said, the way I'm doing it personally is that new patients uh, I do by video, and I can, you know, I can do an NIH scale on anybody pretty much. Uh, and, you know, if I'm seeing somebody for a non-stroke problem, then, you know, I do a limited exam uh, as best as I can. Uh, so it's very important to expand your telehealth capabilities both now and going forward. And the, the nice thing that's happened here uh, is that we now actually get paid for these office visits, which in the past was a big problem. Uh, so the government here is now paying us at pretty much the same rate as it would have been for an in-person visit. So I would strongly encourage you to expand your tele, uh, telehealth uh, capabilities, both for stroke and in, you know, for everything else that you do. Yeah, that's, that's a very nice recommendation. <laughs> I'm sure our admin would love to hear that. That's very good. Uh, because of the concern about the safety of patient information and so on, but I think the time of the pandemic, people have to be able to... Oh, uh, so can I just comment on that? So um, Beth Israel um, is part... We, they hooked us up with something called Starleaf. You can look it up and see what it is. So it's a, um, it's a secure uh, video conferencing. It's not like Zoom, which was the other alternative, where you know, it can get hacked and it's not secure. And there's a Japanese company, which I think I introduced to Osama, Alum, um, yes. which they're getting into this now because they have the capability for telemedicine that they've developed. And they're, 
um, they're FDA approved and what's called HIPAA compliant, which is the um, patient confidentiality. And um, they're going to be rolling this out very soon to be able to do doctor-patient interactions as well as doctor-doctor interactions. So if you're interested in learning more from them, just send me an email and I'll get them in contact with you. I'm using a secure platform right now called Starleaf. Thank you very much for sharing that. Uh, one question from the uh, uh, participants is, what kind of testing would you advocate for stroke patients? Uh, rapid testing uh, or the classic testing? Like, because again, this is a, an issue that we have always to discuss. So what is your take on that? Well, I sort of mentioned it already that um, basically all inpatients at Beth Israel have COVID-19 testing. And uh, we don't have the rapid test available of yet. Uh, yeah. Hopefully it will be available because supposedly the turnaround time is like 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's from Abbott Labs. Yes. Uh, so, you know, obviously when that becomes available, it'll be, be better. But my recommendation is that for as best as you can test people, the more testing, the better. Yeah, and until the test result is available, just uh, protect everyone in the team. That's, yeah. That should be uh, yeah. of extreme importance. Uh, let me see. Um, Osama, while you see if there is anything else, uh, um, I think I do you have any other points? Order. Because I can look at the questions just to screen through them. Uh, I think I think uh, we covered most of the question in the chat. So I have, a, I have a question for the people on. Um, what's, what's the situation in some of the countries of people that are on the call uh, as far as the prevalence of COVID-19? Or, I, mean, you know, I haven't seen data from the Middle East recently. You mean you mean the data about the COVID-19 and the stroke patient? Or the no, just, just COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, is it, yes, is, it, yeah, is it common a, or not a, so common? It's, a, you know, and we are in the early phase. We are lagging behind your, uh, your, uh, your future. We are, we are uh, uh, screenshotting your, uh, your uh, past point. So I think we are in a phase which is uh, behind the, the phase uh, for Italy and USA. Now we are in um, the early phase. We are not yet uh, reached to the peak of the curve. And I think, um, I hope everything is going in a smooth way because uh, according to the um, late research published that uh, we have uh, three strains from the COVID virus and uh, the uh, expert suppose that uh, we have the most benign form of this virus in our area. So the number is uh, less than uh, the uh, magnitude in uh, USA, Italy, and Spain. Uh, I hope everything. We have some cases in uh, the Middle East, not just not like the uh, the, the situation in uh, in uh, in Europe or USA. Yeah, and uh, I, I echo what uh, Osama just said because in uh, in Saudi, our first case recorded in Saudi Arabia was in the 2nd of March. 
So if you look at the 100 to 120 days of uh, reaching the peak, we're still not within that time. And in fact, in the last three days, the cases have been doubling. So I'm just looking at the number. So we were between 400 uh, a day to 700 a day to 1,000 a day. So we are in the uprise uh, phase uh, that was witnessed in uh, in Europe and in North America. So we are we are getting that. And total in the country is like 8,000 out of 30 million, and uh, with 92 deaths. So we're we're still, but we still did not see the the whole the full runt of this thing. Uh, still, we're 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 expecting the worst to come, but uh, we we will be ready hopefully. I have a question from the uh, attendees here um, from uh, Dr. Iman Marakbi. She is asking about um, the covalent plasma to a COVID-19 patient. Uh, uh, if uh, it is given to this patient, uh, did it work or not? I don't. I don't understand. What she is uh, concerning the patient with acute ischemic stroke and the COVID positive or not. Uh, I'm I'm not aware. You know, I mean, I think that's being tried. I don't know how effective it is. Um, the good news is that I saw something on television last night that um, there's an antiviral drug. I forget the name of it. It begins with an R. Um, that's being tested at multiple sites around the world. And there was preliminary data from um, a site in Chicago that was presented yesterday, shown yesterday that... I think it was like 110 patients that were that were seriously ill that were treated with this and only two died. So that's good news. And they said that their whole trial, which has 1,200 patients that are severely affected COVID-19 patients, they're going to report that out in about three weeks. So if it continues to look like that, I mean, we may actually have an antiviral that has good effects. So uh, I just want to say one other thing. I, you know, obviously none of us are infectious disease doctors, I, I presume on the call, but you know, we're all following news reports and literature uh, and getting information. The, the reality of this to me is that until there's an effective vaccine, this is not going to be over. Uh, you know, it'll ebb and flow. Um, and uh, I personally would not feel that I was protected until I either have been shown to have antibodies against the virus or I'm vaccinated. And, uh, you know, that has a big effect on what you do uh, if you know you're at risk because you don't have immunity. So I think, I think everybody needs to consider that. This is not ending in the next couple of months. Yeah. yeah, that's for sure. Um, so, Sam, with anything? Yeah. No, because I have I have no. I mean, the the questions are like here that now. Okay, here like new uh, new question. Do you think that uh, the TPA or the antiplatelet will be affected by the status of COVID, uh, the COVID status, or do you think that has no bearing on the regimen of uh, medication you will use? I'm not aware of anything that would suggest that our acute or secondary prevention treatments uh, are affected. Although obviously if they have this DIC-like state, 
Mm. That would raise some questions. Yeah, but again, I, I think you need to get a hematology evaluation involved in decision making if that happens. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good. I, I, let me see if there is any new questions. Otherwise, we'll just. I wrote the question. Okay, so Amani, who is. So, how, how many different countries do we have represented on this uh, conference call? Uh, I think uh, uh, we have some, uh, some colleagues from Saudi Arabia. From uh, we're looking uh, at those, <laughs> we, lo we lost you. <laughs> from uh, uh, yeah. uh, again, yes, uh, uh, we have some uh, participants from uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, from Jordan, uh, from uh, uh, Afghanistan, from Pakistan, uh, from uh, Egypt, of course, uh, from uh, um, Emirates. Uh, from uh, uh, from Oman, uh, from uh, Tunisia, and from uh, from Sudan. Okay, I was just curious. I have one one last thing to say is that um, if you want to keep up with um, the latest information about COVID-19 and stroke, uh, keep looking at the stroke website because um, we're getting a lot of papers and we're trying to do expedited review. Uh, obviously we're trying to avoid redundancy, but um, you'll see a lot of information on there. There's already several papers accepted and there are several more that are under review. Uh, so some of these issues that we got into today uh, are being uh, addressed by some of these papers. So look at the website on a frequent basis because we, uh, I'm sure we'll be putting a lot more up there. And we're making these papers available to everybody. You know, they're not restricted. No, yeah, fantastic. Okay. So as, a, as far, far as I, I don't see any other new question, do you uh, do you see any other question? No, we covered all of them. Oh, okay. So I think uh, uh, at the end I can find I can find the words to thank you, Mark, for uh, highlighting this point in stroke patient workflow in such critical times, and uh, I think uh, it was a fantastic interview. Uh, I wish you be safe and blessed, uh, and uh, to see to see you soon personally in near future after the recovery of the world from yeah, uh, well, I think travel is going to be an issue for a while so yeah. uh, it's it's sort of depressing but you know we have to deal with the new reality and make the best of it that we can and I think these uh, video conferences are the way to go and, and unfortunately a lot of interactions that's the way it's going to have to be oh thank you thank you so much okay it was much. My, my pleasure thank thanks you. for inviting me thank All you right. yeah thank stay well take care stay safe and blessed bye, bye. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Be safe. Thank you, Dr. Hussain. Yeah, Tislam. Tislam, see you. Wassalam. Wassalam.